Welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 5, The Underneath from 1995. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And this is... Whew. Um, so two in a row, not great. What's weird about this movie, and this is something that I think, I don't remember if we were on mic or off mic last week, but Tobin was sort of warning us or warning me. Cause Mike, had you seen this before, Mike? I think I mentioned that I tried watching this about 10 years ago and fell asleep halfway through and didn't, I'd never revisited. Because I'd never seen it, and Tobin was saying about how even Soderbergh doesn't like this movie. And it kind of looks like a Soderbergh movie, but it doesn't feel like one. And what's really amazing in lots of ways, is on the Criterion DVD that comes with the Blu-ray for King of the Hill, there's an interview, there's a 22-minute interview, and I saw 22 minutes, I was like, oh, God. But it's really good, and even that, he's talking about how, like, he's like, you know you're in trouble when it takes you this long to get out of the credits. Like, he, he just tears this movie apart, and it's great to watch. It's wow. He has always been one of the most self-aware filmmakers, and, and the most sort of publicly honest. Even in the, if you read his interviews from the time that, uh, where he was doing press for the underneath, he's literally out trying to promote the movie. And all he can talk about is the movie he's about to make, which is Schizopolis, which I can't wait for right. us to get to it. I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But he couldn't wait to get to it either. So I, I feel somewhat justified. Well, also, and like in that interview, they show the like 45 second clip from that movie. And I had enjoyed that more than anything in this entire film. Yeah, if you're sticking with Cinemakers and you are thinking about watching some of these movies that you haven't seen and you can find a copy of Schizopolis to watch before we talk about it, do because it is amazing and a, and a complete like burn it down reinvent yourself moment in Soderbergh's career and he actually it's interesting that the um, interview you're, you're mentioning that's on the Criterion DVD he makes the pitch that I was making last week for why movies like King of the Hill and The Underneath are important because they have to do with with the, the breadth of his career with like the arc of his career I should say I think that's true and I I like this movie better this time than I did when I first saw it a long time ago, but I agree with you. It feels a little bit little bit more like somebody else cribbing Steven Soderbergh than like pure Steven Soderbergh. Well, because what's really like surprising is that he's talking about there's that shot in the movie where they're under the overpass and, you know, the brother is spying on them. And he's talking about how he's like, you know, setting up the shot or filming it, And he's not even thinking about this movie. He's thinking about Schizopolis. Which is like, wow. But it, again, I think you were saying this last week, like it's great that it happens this early because if he had done three or four more movies like this, I mean, we're, we're only two years away or three years away from out of sight. And that's, you know, I started reading today. I didn't get too far in it because we started recording, but there's this other book that I bought, the Contemporary Film Directors series, Steven Soderbergh by Aaron Baker. And he talks about how like, you know, 1998 out of sight kicks off this sort of Hollywood stretch where he does that and Aaron Brockovich and Ocean's Eleven and all these traffic, other movies. Yeah. yeah, and Traffic. But, you know, we're, we're not that far away from that. And here is sort of like kind of the breaking point. I mean, the next, he's got two more movies between now and Out of Sight, and neither of them made a lot of money, but they were more the kind of movie that he wanted to make. Here, he just like, I think he just wanted money or needed money to finance the next movie and just signed on to this and was just like, whoa, I can't do this. Like, this is, but the interview is from 2013, so it's well after the fact, but it's startling and like really refreshing to see somebody talk so negatively and he's even like embarrassed to talk about it so negatively because he's like you know I, I'm, I'm worried what the people who worked on the film are going to think of this but like it's great to see him just say you know this is not
not a good movie. Like I, I'm sort of you know, it's it's not good. I don't enjoy watching it. That interview is extremely enjoyable, maybe more enjoyable than the movie, perhaps, at times, but I just love how candid he is and honest he is, and he's just not not into bullshit, and it's just really refreshing when you hear filmmakers like this that just aren't pretentious. And yeah, and I also like how he's acknowledging he's making mistakes, and you know, that this doesn't feel like him, I think, is a good, like, that he's checked out is a good sort of, like, indication. Like, I think, Tobin, you said, like, it almost feels like... imitation Soderbergh film at times because there's there are things here that he's experimenting with and trying out you know like visually I think even said in the interview like his craft was just sort of like on autopilot but like mentally wasn't like paying attention to performance or it and that shows too I don't think it's enjoyable for the performances but I think it has a great look and it's something he's going to utilize later on in his career like the heavy gels like he'll will come back with like traffic and he like kind of has an amber phase I feel like way later on in his career where everything is just like showered in like a gold. But I actually, I mean, maybe my expectations were reset super low because of all of this pre-talk about before watching the movie. But this time I actually managed to stay awake, made it through to the end. And, you know, it's not, it's not great, but it's, it's funny how his sort of his worst work is better than a lot of people's best work still. Like, I feel like there's merit to this film, especially in the stylistic look of it. I don't feel like it's a great adaptation. It's a book, but you could feel like it's somewhere in between the book and the movie here. But this time I feel like it wasn't as bad as I was expecting. This is a remake. Yeah. It's a remake? Okay. I knew it was a novel, but I didn't know it was a remake. So, yeah, that's confused me, because I didn't really, I didn't realize it was a remake, but there's two credited writers, I think, on this, and one of them is a guy who died in 93, and this came out in 95, and I was like, huh, okay. But the other one is Soderbergh, and what was also weird was that Soderbergh couldn't sign his name on this movie due to some legal something or other, so he wrote his name as Sam Lowry, who's the character in Brazil which is, you know, strange, but this is based on a movie from, like, 46 or something? But by the end of him writing the screenplay, all he did was keep two things, which was, like, a guy returning home, and then that sequence of him waking up in the hospital after an accident or whatever, and, you know, being interrogated like that, which that that definitely feels like it's old-timey, noir, 40s sort of thing. And he points that out in the interview as, like, he's like, I think that's interesting because at least there's a choice being made there. And when I was watching it, I, I still, I'm not sure if I like that or not, but it's so radically different from everything that comes up to it at that point, and really after that point, that it stands out, and I still, I'm not sure if it's good or if it's bad. It almost feels like that, the only thing that reminds me of is like that one Twilight Zone episode where the, the woman is getting like surgery on her face or whatever, and like, they're like, we, we can't make you beautiful, we're so sorry, and she's beautiful, but everybody else has like pig faces or whatever. Uh, like, it feels like that, like it's this weird, jarring camera angle, but he points that out as like the only time in this movie that he was really sort of creative with the camera, which is probably a fair statement. Yeah, and I think not just with the camera, I think you're right, but I think also with the performances, with the tone. You know, he talks in the interview, too, about not getting the tone right on this movie, the same way that he felt like he he couldn't with Kafka. Um, And I think that that's true. I think there are places where it doesn't quite know what the point of view is. And the thing about that scene, you're totally right. If that scene, I, I watching it, you're like, this is so different from the rest of the movie. And it feels so much more ambiguous. At this point in the movie, the the main character, Pete Gallagher, is woken up in the hospital after he's been shot in this botched robbery that 
Uh, he was an inside man on, but nobody really knows that. And people may or may not be after him. He's a little paranoid. And this guy comes in to sit in the room with him, calls this guy in from the hallway, who at first he thinks is bad, and then he thinks might be just a just a random guy. And and but through the whole conversation, like he keeps going back and forth. He can't tell if if he's paranoid, and this guy is not after him, or if the guy actually is after him. And there's something in that scene that to me feels like. I don't know if it's if it's really working or not, but I know it's distinct. I know it's different. And I think this is going to happen to us with Soderbergh time and time again, where scenes will happen will be like, it's fascinating. It's it's really interesting. I'm not totally sure it works, but I'm so glad he's making some choices and that it's, you know, it gives us something to sort of chew on. His movies usually give you something to chew on. And I think that that and, and, the, and the previous hospital scene, which is I think the one he was talking about in the interview, where it's just his point of view of all the different people in the movie who are coming to talk to him in the hospital, and he's sort of coming in and out of consciousness, and uh, th- that he was also really sort of awake for. But that, that hospital stuff feels like it comes, the movie comes alive in, in a, a, a some way there. Yeah, I really felt like not only the tone, but the pace of this was off as well. It, it could have been kind of a tight noir heist thriller, but this feels more like a dream. He he describes it as sleepy, which yeah. is like not in a yeah, good way. Right, it's just right. and it put me to sleep the first time, so that's kind of funny. Uh, but it tries to do things by playing with time as well to kind of keep you off balance or re-engage you at times. And I don't really feel like that's entirely successful either. Maybe it all could have been like one big flashback, but it, instead of keeping me along it just disconnected me at times i was like oh now he's got a beard now now his beard is shaved and then it took yeah. me a minute to realize like oh these are past and present because he also does that with the heist the heist is also sort of woven in as a third timeline um that they cut around to like the day of so you know the jumping around didn't really help either i think maybe more of like a linear story and never re- revealing the reason he left town which i'm not even sure they entirely get to i mean he owed a whole lot of money but yeah, you'd leave town, but would you ever come back? Like, they never explained how that score was settled or he, any he of that. He comes back for the wedding, right? His stepdad's wedding, yeah. yeah. But it's not like people were after him either. He was able to settle in, get a job. So it was his past wasn't really revealed clearly anyway. Why even delve into it, keep it a mystery? There are ways, there are fixes. I, that's kind of my point. I just felt like there's a movie in here, but because he was, Soderbergh was kind of checked out, and, you know, you can't really blame him if it's not engaging you as a creative, as a director. Like, you can't really force that. Might be worse. So, you know, maybe if someone, if this material was in someone else's hands at the time, it could have been something, like, a lot different. Well, it all seems weird, because he says in that interview that he was supposed to do Quiz Show, and then got bumped from Quiz Show, so then he went here. And then at the same time that he was making this, the same studio was making Waterworld, and apparently things were such a disaster over there that, like, they couldn't get anybody from the studio on the phone. So, like, it was good because, like, they were sort of on their own, but it was also bad because they were on their own. So it just seems like a very strange time to make a movie that, like, you weren't necessarily supposed to be involved with or that you didn't necessarily have on your radar. Uh, But in terms of the timelines, it's, like, there's – it's clearly a past, a present, and a future when the movie starts. And there's one in one color, there's one in another color. You know, we got Peter Gallagher with a beard in one of them. But, like, it, it's never clear which is which. And I don't think that that ambiguity is used in any way to, like, further the story. It's just clumsy storytelling. You know, there's a thing that happens sometimes to writers, to screenwriters, where, where you're working on a script, and it's just, it's terrible. It's just not, 
at least I hope this happens to other writers. Uh, it's just terrible. <laughs> and, and, and what you end up doing is sort of scrapping it for parts. And you, you know, you realize, you know, three years later that you've borrowed that like one character has spun off to be a whole its own thing. And you borrowed the structure to, to write something else that's much better. And you've sort of cannibalized it for parts. And that's what I think he's done with this movie, because a lot of those techniques you're talking about here, he uses to amazing effect in other movies. The nonlinear stuff that he that he does, he does a lot of that in movies like Out of Sight, but also The Limey, which is one of my favorite movies of his. He, he plays with time in interesting ways that, that I think is much more successful, both thematically and emotionally. And then, and then the color thing, too. I mean, Traffic being the main example of a movie where the uh, sort of extreme differences in look between the, the three or four stories happening in Traffic all comes out of this movie. Like you can, which is why I think maybe this feels like it's, um, like it's sort of uh, imitation Soderbergh because it's actually like embryonic Soderbergh. It's from this that stuff will come. And later on, when people are, are imitating him, they'll be imitating those better versions of the things he's doing in this movie. So th- this is, you know, like I say, I, did, I, don't, I don't hate this movie. I don't even particularly dislike this movie. Sleepy is a great word for it. It just doesn't come together. It's not, all the elements are not, are not working. And the story itself isn't really working. There are some characters like his brother, who I never fully understand um, what he's no. doing or what his job is or how nefarious he is. or I just... Does he even factor into the end? No, I, not that I saw. No. I'm so confused. I'm so confused. It's like the threat of his brother, right? But like the end is that he gets double-crossed, that there's the bank robbery that goes wrong, his father-in-law gets killed, who's not supposed to be on the job in the first place. He goes to protect Elizabeth Shue, my love from leaving Las Vegas. Yeah, she's so good. And he protects her, and like he goes down and says his hero for trying to stop this robbery, but the father-in-law gets killed, and then he gets kidnapped by this guy at the hospital, which that is, the, again, that sort of works, but it's also strange, because the nurse, who's Shelley Duvall, yeah. who goes from being a leading lady in The Shining to basically a glorified cameo here? It's a cameo. It's a cameo. She's like, oh, he's here for his sister, and then that guy's actually here to, you know, Peter Gallagher's right that he's here to take him away. But the end is that, and this is, I don't even know, maybe I'm wrong, maybe you can set me right, but like, he gets abducted and brought to William Fickner and his, his now wife, Peter Gallagher's ex-wife, who's, I don't remember the character's name, but she played by Allison Wright, and they're betraying him. They're like, you know, it's, a, a heist is all about how much you can take, and I'm taking the whole thing. And so William Fickner kills the guy who brings him there, and then somehow Peter Gallagher convinces his ex-wife to turn on William Fickner, and they kill him. But then the wife then turns on Peter Gallagher, and she takes the whole thing. But then the boss from the armored car company <laughs> is following her? Okay, yes. Like, what? Yeah, because he's the guy that Fickner called, and it didn't even know the name of, to help set up the heist, right? Uh, yeah, okay. and so we they, find so out... everybody the, had, like, inside guys. Yeah, and so that truck with the signals are the people who want their cut, right? They, she didn't know there was a third cut being dealt out to these people, like a third party, so they're after the loot, and they're going to take her out and just probably take all the money. Yeah, and then it goes back to uh, Mitchell. I mean, uh, Joe Don Baker. Like, I guess that's sort of like a like one more twist of the knife at the end, but I think like what could have maybe been a better ending, and maybe it's just because I like to see the woman, like the sort of the damsel in distress, like win in the end. But in the middle of the movie, when, you know, Peter Gallagher shows up to the bar or the restaurant and William Fickner gets furious, and then he meets up with his ex-wife and his ex-wife is like, we can't see each other again. And then she has that line like, you know, men buy me Mustangs, I don't know why. 
I would have loved to have seen the final shot of the movie, which I thought it was going to be, of her driving off into the sunset with the money. But then, no, she stops at this gas station, and that's when we see the, like, the armored car guy go. But like, I would have loved to have had her get away at the end instead of this unnecessary one final twist of the ninth. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I thought it, it would have even been good if she met up with the brother at the end, because she has talk where, you know, your brother's been stalking me, and, you know, he won't leave me alone, and this and that, and it could have been a good setup for a big reveal there at the end where she goes to meet him, and it's like, oh, he's a cop, so she, he provided certain protection enabling them to now get away, cross a border, or something like that, but it is, it does feel like a one step too far. Indeed, you know, just let her get away with it one way or the other. Uh, it, it feels justified, funny enough. Like, she feels like the one person throughout this whole movie that's just kind of getting the worst end of the deal. First, she's with Peter Gallagher, who's just this gambling. Yeah, yeah. He's just addicted to gambling, and he can't stop buying stuff. And then he just skips town, and now he's she's with Fickner, who's just, like, clearly got, like, anger issues and, you know, super suspicious about everything. So I was like, yeah, she deserves to, you know, pull off this double cross. Which I think is why it would have even been better, because, like, she's so, like, the loser in every, like you just said, like, she's she's a short on the stick every point up to that point. To have her not even win in the end, it's just like, what? So in our tradition of rewriting movies that we're watching, I think there's a version of this movie that takes the entire thing from her point of view. Where you start with a woman who's just, she's just a, 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 you know, a girl with a dream. She's just a woman who's married to Peter Gallagher and trying to make a life. And he's this like gambler who keeps getting deeper and deeper in debt and like installing giant satellites in the backyard and all this stuff. And it's just sort of like ruining her life, basically. And then goes away. And like that begins the sort of downward spiral where she ends up then with this guy who seems really nice, but then turns out to be this like terrible like gangster guy, right? Like. There's, there's a whole, it's, it's so deeper, deeper, deeper into it. And then at the end, she turns out to have figured out how to play them all and gets away at the end with the, with the loot. Like that, that could have been an interesting sort of reversal of what we're used to seeing in a, you know, how does the femme fatale become a femme fatale? That's kind of, that would be kind of a fascinating way to tell the, the bones of this story. But it's, it's clearly not what, you know, he was interested in doing. <laughs> she does have the line of the movie, as far as I'm concerned. And it's like such a classic noir line where... Peter Gallagher is asking her how William Fickner treats her, and he's like, he treat you okay, and she says, not as well as guys without money. And, like, <laughs> in that short sentence, you know so much about so many things. Like, you know her history, and you know her relationship now, and you also get a sense of, like, her relationship with Peter Gallagher, and, like, there's so much in that. And then, like, she's just basically gone from the movie. Like, she's just, like, a background character. Like, what is her arc? That she wants to become, like, a lottery girl on TV? Like, that's that's all. That's the, that's the only thing that we see her want. Yeah, what I took it from was she just needs to feel like she's worth something, right? Like, it, like she's got this boyfriend who's providing by gambling, so she doesn't need to really work necessarily. But she is an actress. Lottery girls aren't always from the state, right? Some of them are actresses. So, like, it just seemed like she an audition. I mean, it could have just been in a, an audition for anything, ultimately, is how I feel. But I feel like at, at some level, there was an idea to weave in winning the lottery and luck and how all of that sort of money issues, you know, the color green is super heavily used here in this movie. I mean, money is on the mind, you know, one way or the other. Uh, that's a theme being pounded in the entire time. Just not with any kind of, like, tact, though. It's just thrown around, you know? It's just kind of splattered, and that's the problem. There's no direction to it. It's there. 
there, but it's aimless and kind of confusing at times. But I, I think it's like, yeah, it could have been anything, but, you know, we got his mom playing the lottery. There's lots of lotto signs in it. Money is a big theme. So it just, I bet it was just sort of like that line of thinking. Yeah, it's like green for money, and green also at times sort of feels like for jealousy, and then blue for depression, but it's just like, yeah, like we get it, but like everything is blue. Like the whole movie is blue, unless it's green. Like there's no other color. Like it's one of those two, and that's it. Yeah, from time to time it just kind of goes back to looking like a normal movie just for certain scenes. But then when it does that, it's something like uh, he refers to it as the notorious dinner dinner table scene, right? With all of those... All the doctors, um, yeah. Which is funny because, like, he talks about how difficult it is to shoot a dinner scene, and he's done it twice now in four movies. Like, because he did that whole big scene in Sex Lies, and he did it again here. And he's, he's talking about how difficult it is to shoot, and how he, like, wants to shoot it creatively or whatever and doesn't work. But, like, then just stop doing it. Yeah, and to make it harder on yourself. I mean, I, from what I know, those shots are incredibly tricky to pull off, yeah, and, yeah. you know, those aren't easy to do. And do an entire scene of those. Like, I usually see one or two right. in a De Palma film from right. time to time. Or Michael Mann, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So it's excessive. But again, it just feels like a choice made in haste. And let's just do it this way and move on and, and not second guess ourselves. There's one shot that I wrote in my notes. I've got to steal this shot. So I think I, we, we should talk about some things that really maybe work too. There's a, a moment in the movie where Peter Gallagher has invited uh, Alice and Elliot over to his house, or actually their old house, right? And they get caught there um, by Bill Fickner, who who's like... Now it's like, oh, I found you guys. I'm going to kill you. You know, like he's just, he's discovered them together. And Peter Gallagher talks his way out of it by saying, actually, I was I called her over here to ask her how best to approach you about a job that I think we could pull about this armored car heist. And there's a there's a shot that happens then with Peter Gallagher. It's a close up of him on the left side of the screen and the back of William Fickner's head in the middle of the of the shot. And then on the right hand side of the shot is Allison Elliott. And they start, so Bill Fickner and Alison Elliott start making out in the scene as Peter Gallagher is describing what they're, like, what this heist is. And it's, what's so great about that is that we know that Peter Gallagher is actually still madly in love with his ex-wife. And, and so he's got to stand there and take it while Bill Fickner, you know, is like slobbering all over here as he's lying, as he's coming up with this scheme. Like it's a really great, and it just holds, that shot just holds for that whole conversation. And it's, I, I just think that was a great, great choice. I did like that shot, but in terms of the narrative, did you think that he was already going to bring Bill Fickner into it? Or is that just sort of like a, hey, we're together. Like they got caught in something and they're like, oh, the way to talk us out of it is to bring him in on the job. I think he was, he was, yeah, I think that's what it was. I think he was, he was okay. like, like he didn't want him in there, but that was the only way to sort of explain why they were together. My read on it was he was that he hadn't even come up with the idea that he, he wasn't planning to rob anything. Oh, like he just, he, okay. I don't know that that's true. That's how it felt to me. Yeah, that's how it felt to me as well. And I'm not sure if that's the intention, but it seemed that he came back to town, decided to stick around because he could go straight and then was sort of caught in this web and tried to talk his way out of it and implicated himself by just, you know, having that criminal mentality, (laughs) thinking on his feet like, oh, I could, you know, actually pull this is something I would have done back in the day. And yeah, I've put my foot in my mouth. If she had been married to a dentist when he came back, he would not have come up with this lie in that moment. And like... I think he, if he had come back and she not been with anybody or or whatever, he he would have he would have gone tried to go straight. I don't think that we never get the sense that he was a like a thief before. He was just a, a gambler, and so I, I think this is out of out of character for him. 
which is weird and which doesn't play, unfortunately, for me <laughs> as well as I think it should, right? And I think that leads me to a big problem for myself, which is the performances in this movie. Like, I just don't feel like a lot of them are that great. It doesn't feel like people got a chance to really settle into anything to, like, develop much or find themselves. Everything just kind of feels, I don't want to say, like, amateurish, but it just feels... I don't know. I just don't really believe a lot of it. I think uh, Elizabeth Shue's great because I'm just like blinded by her. You right. know, like she just gets a pass. And she's legit great in like Hamlet too. I'm yes. just gonna hawk that whenever. Yes. Here, here. Uh, but I think Fink- Finkner for me is the best part because of the extremes his character reaches in basically every scene he's in. He goes, he pulls like a Nick Cage kind of like I, w- I was actually thinking of cage from time to time with that character you know this could have been somewhere around the realm of red rock west at times or veered into that other one the other crime one where he played uh big daddy little daddy um little no. junior yeah kiss of death it's the same year because 95 was kiss of death and what's weird about cage in 95 is he was kiss of death which is a similar kind of film but, you know, we have What's-His-Face, Dave Caruso. And then also 95 was the movie with Elizabeth Shue leaving Las Vegas. So very weird sort of everything coming together here on the Case Club Podcast Network about 95 films with Cage and Crime and Elizabeth Shue all wrapped into one. What's kind of disappointing to me, and like again, I feel like we're just not nitpicking this movie, but it's not bad. It's just bland. Like There's potential here that just isn't utilized. And another way that, that's, that I feel like that is exhibited is this takes place in Austin and I spent the last two years there and aside from him going to a lot of live music there's nothing about it that feels like Austin at all and you know to even be reminded of one of Austin's own boys Richard Linklater is in this movie as that guy at the club you know stamping hands sucker and loser or whatever you know he makes movies that bleed Austin and so do you know other guys like Mike Judge and you know people who have done stuff from there this is set there for no reason like there's no reason to name drop Austin and then not do anything at all with the city like everything's just inside they're just in clubs and banks and basements basically He says in in an interview from the time that his impression of Austin was sort of an anonymous city. Like, and I don't know if that reflects just him not having spent a lot of time there, not being particularly interested in it, or if it was if Austin has you know changed a lot since '95. Oh, it's 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 almost it's almost certainly changed a lot in the last twenty years. So that's that's probably fair. That maybe that maybe it would he would have. You know, if if he was making this movie, I guess if he was making this movie now, he would have done a lot of things differently. But yeah, I don't know. I think that might have something to do with it. He was looking for something that was sort of anonymous. He didn't want, he says in this interview, he did not want the the wet pavement and dark shadows of a traditional film noir, like the urban decay. He wanted to set it where where it had to do more with the sort of emotions of the characters, not the sort of surroundings. I'm not saying he was successful, and I'm not saying that that was a good idea, Uh, but, but it was a choice. It's not a... It was, a, sure. it was a deliberate choice. But I mean, you also look at like Dazed and Confused, which came out two years earlier, and that's set in Austin in the 70s. And that just like, that feels like a place, yeah. obviously. You know what I mean? Right. What I'm saying is he didn't want this to be a place. I guess. But just then don't name the city. Just say he's yeah. coming back right. to town. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. His problem is that he didn't name the place. Well, right. there are a lot of problems, but, but, but <laughs> he wouldn't have garnered this reaction from you if he had not named the place. Right. It's tough to invoke a mood with a place when you want it to be anonymous, I suppose. <laughs> like that's And that's an issue. Is Yeah, I, I kind of thought about that from time to time because I was like, where are we? When are we? You know, the, not with the time jumps, you know, let's just 
I'm not talking about that, but I just mean like anyway, like what decade, like there's really nothing to call any of that out. And, you know, that could be good to have that out of the way if your story is doing the work and if the rest of the film is picking up the slack. But this really could have used a couple like landmark location shots and, you know, let's rendezvous like that bridge they use seemed kind of interesting and maybe iconic. But it's like, like, isn't there a bat bridge in Austin? There is a bat bridge. Yeah. I don't, but like this, that's not like, that's not that bridge. I don't know what bridge that is. It's it's kind of the opposite problem we've had with a lot of movies where I feel like a lot of times on these podcasts, or, you know, not necessarily the Soderbergh one, but other ones, Cage and Keanu, we're like, wait, where does this movie happen? And, like, it's sort of vague, and we're like, is it New York? Is it the Pacific Northwest? Like, here, it's, you know, the opposite problem that, like, they explicitly tell you where it is, and then it just doesn't feel like anywhere. So it's a spectrum, and, like, that's the two ends, and neither of them work. You made a couple choices that just don't match each other. Yeah, they don't work. The choices don't work. It's but it's the reason he didn't choose iconic settings and a, and a iconic bridge is because he doesn't want it to be iconic. He wants it to to feel to feel like it could be anywhere. Which you're right. He should have then just made it anywhere and not not named it to sort of leaven this again. Another thing I really like about some of the movies that he's doing here is that the cops in his movies. There, there's a, a couple of cops who are in a, who are very briefly in the movie as they come to interview. Peter Gallagher while he's, while he's in uh, the hospital, they look like cops. They don't look like movie cops. Like his cops, his cops do not look like people you know, who have all stepped out of a salon somewhere and are like, you know, movie <laughs> cops. Like they look like workaday cops and do the same thing with FBI agents. Okay, so not with Jennifer Lopez because she's that's a different kind of thing. But 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 with <laughs> with some of the other FBI agents and out of sight and other movies like the informant, definitely the informant, exactly, exactly. And whether they're actors that we know that are being dressed down or scruffed up or whatever, or in this case, people that you just don't know who are only in the movie for a, just a little moment, but they give a sense of of sort of depth and reality that I that you know as someone who watches a lot of stuff with cops and I really appreciate that they these feel more like you know law enforcement officers that i've known as opposed to sort of the movie version what i also liked in a similar vein uh on a more of a personal level is that there's the i kept calling them the garda company because that's like the only armored car i know they, they have some like waypoint armored services or something like some weird name but i liked seeing deputy andy yes. from twin yeah. peaks yes as an armored car guy because he's just like he's the perfect kind of like you know friendly airheady kind of guy just like his job is like do puzzles and like wait to get called to go pick up money like that's was great too i like seeing him in that yeah, he plays the perfect sort of safe cop, right? Like a guy or like a security guard or a cop who in a place where, you know, you're not really, the, the shit isn't really going to go down too much. <laughs> like, I mean, Twin Peaks, it, it goes there, I suppose, but uh, it, it, he set the mood pretty well. What I did like about, I guess it's not necessarily about the movie, but about like the interview about the movie is he talks about how this film, he said, probably set a record in terms of how few feet of film he exposed or he shot for this. Like, he shot 62,000 feet, which to me doesn't mean anything. Like, I, didn't, I had no idea, like, a concept of what that number was. And then he said that Michael Mann shoots 30,000 feet a day. And so that's, like, two days' work for this entire thing. But what really struck me in the interview was he says, instead of how many shots I need, I started to ask, how few shots do I need? And so it's cool to see him, you know, even in a movie where he's not necessarily invested, you can see him in this film piecing together, okay, how can I do this economically? And that's sort of the reputation he's built, right? About how he's like this guy who will, you know, get you in under budget and also, you know, not waste time or not waste money or not waste whatever and still be able to put together a final product that works, that tells a story that, you know, it might be 
reliant upon him as an editor more than other directors because he knows exactly how it has to get together or how it has to cut together. But I, I liked seeing that in terms of his vision, even when he's shooting, he's like, well, we don't need to do all these other coverage shots because I know how this is all going to piece together. Yeah, and what's interesting is that after Schizopolis, he's going to do what feels to me like more of a combination of traditional coverage shooting and then picking his moments and picking his his point of view shots. And he talks about in an interview that after Che, he moves into a back into sort of a similar vein to this, where he, where he'll see if he can only get a scene in two shots. Are there only? Or can he get a scene in two setups, just as a way to sort of be economical and make sure that you've got a point to the scene, that you understand whose scene it is and what they want and how they're feeling about whether they're getting it or not and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, it, it's a bit of an exaggeration because obviously there are going to be scenes where you can't, but his whole point was like, prove, you have to prove myself that I need more than two shots in order to do it, as opposed to saying, how many shots can I squeeze into the three hours I have to shoot this scene? Which is, I think for sort of people who are filmmakers, like that's, this is the thing that he's so good at is, is setting himself limitations and setting himself challenges and finding ways to, to sort of reinvent what he's doing to keep it fresh for himself. There are echoes in what he's talking about when he, whenever he's talking about the underneath, either now in this interview or at the time that he made it in those interviews, this desire to reinvent himself, this desire to step away from what he'd been doing and go make a movie, the next movie for, you know, $75,000 with five people just off by himself. You know, the same kind of thing he's going to do later on when he, quote unquote, retires from film, when he leaves cinema, he's going to go make TV and plays and paint and you know, do other things. And, and I think that we, um, people made some fun of him for that. They still do. I've always felt sort of inspired by that. Like, here's a guy who rather than making more fake stuff, rather than trying to just make stuff to make stuff, he's going to leave this and go do something else so that he can keep himself fresh. And I really, I really appreciate that about him as an artist. Yeah, because he even says in the interview, he's like, instead of spending time questioning why more people didn't go see side effects, I'm just going to go over to TV and do this 10-hour thing that I really enjoy doing. Like, why am I going to bother, you know, like, because he talks about how he always has to adapt, he always has to adapt or die, about how he, like, sort of fits into the story or, like, however the, the landscape wants him to tell stories. But it's a good point. Like, if people aren't seeing the kind of movie that you want to make, like, go make something that fulfills you creatively that people care about. Right, and I think there are a lot of filmmakers who are not self-aware enough to or maybe brave, brave enough, or I'm not sure what, what they're lacking. And I'm not sure I would have it either. I don't, I don't think I could do what he, what he does, faced with the success that he'd had. But he, his ability to be aware enough about that to himself and to sort of take himself out of the game and to sort of be confident that he'll figure out some way to you know, feed himself and have a fulfilling artistic experience is, is really inspiring to me. Oh, there was a cool quote in the book that I, I was mentioning that I was reading before, which, it, you know, it, it's a perfect time. It's not about this movie, but it's a perfect time to bring it up because he, he's talking about how, like, people question because he's such a personal filmmaker. Like, all these stories are, like, stories that, like, he wants to tell, especially, you know, Sex Lies, where he's talking about how all four of those characters are just sort of different parts of himself or whatever. And people ask, like, how can a movie like Ocean's Eleven be a personal movie? And he says, no, they're all personal for me, even the Ocean's movies. I don't spend two years of my life on stuff I'm not into, which, you know, he did here. And, like, that's why it, like, changed him, right? Like, he wasn't into this. I wonder if, like, if, if Hollywood or whatever didn't let him make more movies, if he would have continued making more movies or if he would have gone back into this. You know what I mean? Like, 
I don't even know if there's an answer to it, but like it's sort of like a weird hypothetical, like, does he like making movies enough that if the only way he can make more movies that he really wanted to make was to make more stuff like this, are those year or two years he'd have to spend on a film he doesn't care about worth it to keep going? And I'm not sure if they are, because it seems like he's so miserable in this. Yeah, I think our answer to that might come when we get to Schizopolis, because I feel like he'll never tread anywhere close to this low again, in my opinion. You know, like he got, I feel like he got this out of his system. You know, like, I think if the ultimatum was you have to make the underneath every four years or every two years, and those are the only movies you can make, he would go write books, he would go do television. This, It's like a prison. <laughs> this movie kind of feels like filmmaker prison. And afterwards, you know, I don't really feel like he had many options. You know, I don't think I don't think people were necessarily knocking for Soderbergh uh, after this movie either. I mean, they might have started to write him off. They might have just been like, that's all he's got. You know, it's been four films. That says a lot about a filmmaker, but it definitely didn't say all there is about him because he will go in the completely opposite direction. He will, you know, as far away from this, like the pendulum will swing to the, you know, other side as far as it can. And I feel like his movies find balance after that you know like uh, down the line like he has a way to get to softer quieter moments but not dwell on them and make them the tone of the entire film to the point where they put you to sleep like i don't feel like any of his films from this point on will feel boring so uh, at least it's out of his system i feel from my point of view and that's a good place to be going for like it's great that he's aware of that too like he's self-aware enough to be like all right i know limits i know my limits and like we've been saying like he'll set certain limits and you know that's very smart and that keeps film in the realm of art too in a lot of ways you know if you're just if you're going out just willy-nilly and making movies that's fine but you know imposing restrictions using a certain palette you know certain tools and this brush instead of that brush and then it starts to just feel more like a craft and those I think feel more personal and honest and I think that gets to a little more um, of what he's saying it's like they are personal films in that regard you know after this movie there will undoubtedly be Soderbergh movies you don't like but there will never be Soderbergh movies that are uninteresting there may be Soderbergh movies that move more slowly that that have a a deliberate pace or that feel more artificial in some way like he, he tries a lot of different things but but the thing that I've always felt is that they've never been uh, dull. They've never been generic. They will never be generic after the underneath. This is the last sort of gasp of generic. In I don't think he would. I don't think he could make something generic after this. Again, I don't love everything he's ever made. This is not necessarily like they're, they're all going to be you know perfect, but they are all going to be interesting in some way. That's good. What also is weird, and, this, and what Mike was just saying reminded me about you know using specific brushes, making specific choices. For the, at least the third time here, well, aside from Peter Gallagher being back for the third time and him, you know, clearly because he was in Sex Lies, he was also in Fallen Angels, The Quiet Room last week, and then he's in this now. Aside from him, Cliff Martinez is back for the third time. And so I like that he's back. That's a specific choice. But to me, what was weird is that the, the score in this movie is so understated. Like, I don't remember. Like, there's the opening credits have cool music. And I was like, this sounds like Cliff Martinez. And it was. But, like, I only heard the music one or two other times, which either it's really subtle in the background or it's just forgettable. I don't remember music in this movie much, which is weird because, like, they work so well together when Cliff Martinez scored his other movies. I think, like, Sex, Lies, and Kafka, I think, 
it was just, or may, he might have even done, did he do King of the Hill 2? Maybe. But anyway, like, it's it's weird. Like, do you guys remember the music in this movie? Because I don't. In, the inter- in, this, in this interview I read from The Time, he talked about how his original conception of the movie was not to have any music at all. So he had Cliff Martinez write this opening piece, which he loved. And then, like, my memory is, and I don't know if this is accurate, but it was something like eight days before they had to lock the picture, he realized they needed some music in the movie. And so he, you know, jumped into the studio with with Cliff Martinez and worked out what score there is. I actually wrote in my notes that I like the score of this, especially in this kind of a movie, a a sort of contemporary noir-ish movie. I like an understated score. I don't want to hear, you know, the John Williams version of of this movie's score. Like I like like a quieter, more like sort of a tonal score, a score that maybe is more about the um, feeling of the sound rather than a melody or something like that. And I, I appreciate I appreciate it that in in this movie it's one of the things that i <laughs> that i would have kept uh from this movie but you're right it almost it almost blends into the background i think part of that is because he, he was really resistant to having uh, music in it at all <laughs> that might be a restriction one too many yeah. you know, i think that your, yeah. your movie needs music like one way or, or the other and to me it was so understated i really it was not memorable i can't really place it right now in my head um which is unfortunate because i feel like it would have benefited from some type of soundscape of some kind like whether it be industrial sort of knocking or banging at times or just like synth type of you know what hold a note for a couple minutes hold another note for a couple minutes you know it could be basic it it could you know it could be very minimal but it definitely wasn't noticeable for me unfortunately yeah, there's only like one other time that I caught it, and it was it was just it was minor in the background. Like I don't need you to be bombastic with it. Like you said, like I don't want a John Williams thing, but just I don't know, just have some kind of some kind of something. I also feel like it didn't benefit from having those live bands in the film to sort of contrast whatever score there was because those bands, like they weren't exactly my taste. I don't know if that was like part of the joke was that these are, I don't know if these were just like local bands that, that he was like, who's playing that night? Let's just shoot some local acts. And they're all just so drastically different and eclectic type of music that they just really, I felt like they clashed with the rest of the film so hard. It's all the music I can really remember. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I, I forgive that because that's the only thing about the movie that feels like Austin. Like, that's, like, I, I just sort of assumed that as that, but that's also, that also makes that even more weird because if that's how you're portraying the city and, like, you just don't do anything else, like, it's just, it's strange to highlight that because you're right, like, it doesn't jive with anything. Do either of you have any other thoughts about the underneath? Only uh, other thing in my notes here is: Do you guys know Allison Elliot, who plays the who plays Rachel, who plays the the main female in it from anything? No, I, I looked her up. I don't remember what is she from. You know, it's it, not a lot of people would probably have seen it. But back in the '90s, there was a um, a British adaptation of uh, Wings of the Dove. Which is, I think, a Henry James novel. I think that's that's who wrote the book. But like, it's like a you know um, these Miramax movies, these like British movies in the in the '90s that Miramax brought over and would heavily market in the United States. And it's a movie I really like. Um, Helena Bottom Carter and Linus Roach are the other two main characters in it. They can't marry, I think, because they are um, of different social classes and they don't have enough money or something. And so, but they find out that that Alison Elliott plays this American heiress who's dying of consumption, I think. And so they they gaslight her. They get her to fall in love with the Linus Roach character and go on this, I think they go to to Venice or something. They go on this this like European tour as they're trying to sort of like steal her money, basically. And and it's it's kind of a fascinating 
contemplative, but then like very sexy movie at times. I don't know. I, she, and she's great in it. I think, um, it's been a while since I've seen it, but my memory is that she's, that she's awfully good. And I had to look her up too. I didn't, Seeing her here, I'm like, I wouldn't have known the name, I, but the, her face was very familiar, so I, I sort of looked her up. It looks like she's worked sort of consistently, but that she'll always be that character to me. If you haven't seen Wings of the Dove, I do, I do recommend it. Oh, did you say that Elizabeth McGovern was in that movie from King of the Hill? So a little bit of a Soderbergh connection there through that movie. She was a, apparently a tiny, tiny part in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Yes. She plays Elle Fanning's mom in 20th Century Women. I don't remember her in that. She plays the mom of the main kid in this new movie called The Phenom, which is notable only because the director directed Sparrow's Dance, which I absolutely loved. And I still, I watched two of his other movies, and I still don't like either of those movies nearly as much as Sparrow's Dance. So I'm going to keep giving you a shot, Noah, Noah Bushel. But yeah, other than that, I haven't seen Allison Elliott in anything. Yeah, I don't know that she's very well served here, and Soderbergh talks about that in the interview from the time where he says he he didn't he didn't give her any chance to stretch her range at all. Like she's pretty opaque in this movie, which is part of the point of her, I think, in the, in the, her character in the movie. But it doesn't allow her to show anything off. I think she's I think she's better than this movie lets her uh, lets her be. Probably, I mean, especially if she's still working, you know, she's good at something. I so. think everybody is better than this movie lets them. Lets them be. Although I was <laughs> glad to see, I was glad to see um, the dad from Sixteen Candles uh, show up as as his stepdad, who who I knew was going to die from like the minute he shows up in the movie. He's too Ugh. he's too sort of good hearted a person to not to not to, to not die in the course of this kind of movie. I still can't believe people hired Joe Don Baker. Like, I mean, he's been in Bond films. He's been in everything. Like, he can do good stuff, I suppose. But, like, I don't know, man. Sometimes I just feel like he doesn't belong there. And especially in this movie, it's just his presence. Every time he came on screen, I just kind of chuckled. And then at the end with his big reveal, I mean, he has the whole thing with the peppermint patties. <laughs> The easiest job interview ever. I was expecting those to be like dinner mints or something, and they turn out to be <laughs> like a piece of candy. Yeah. Jesus. But yeah, so it was kind of jarring when he showed up. Mike, any other thoughts about the underneath? I like the shot at the end when she's doing the lotto scratch off with her wedding ring. I thought that was, yeah, that was cool. a cool idea. Ultimately, this wasn't as bad as I was expecting, but yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> still not great. I think there's better movies like this, like Red Rock West. You know, I feel like that is sort of like a really good, sleepy neo-noir that uh, keeps you interested. It's, it's interesting. You know, I feel like that movie's twists and turns are, are cool. Um, so this sort of just misses a mark, but I, I think visually there's a lot of cool stuff going on, but maybe too much of it, right? Like everything is sort of to one extreme or another. Um, the visual style doesn't match the pace, doesn't match the mood, doesn't match this, doesn't match that. So there's bits and pieces that I like, but as a whole, it just doesn't really come together. The last two things that I thought of was, I thought it was funny to see not funny, but we saw Emmett Smith, a college football game, so that very clearly dated when he bets 30 grand on LSU in that one football game. And the other thing was the vendor number, which they apparently needed for that heist, was 1138, which I guess was just a bit of a nod to George Lucas. So, Oh, THX? Cool. So you got a, a Brazil and a THX reference in the same movie. Yeah, so that's the underneath. The next up is Schizopolis, which I, you know, based on generic greeting, generic greeting returned or whatever was in that little interview clip I just and I cannot wait to watch so I'm very excited for that so I guess really the the worst of it is behind us which is good to know you know because we have so much more of this to come and to have sort of be you know five things in and have the two bad stuff behind us the two bad episodes behind us 
And this is even bad. It's just compared to what we've seen or what we know was going to come, it's just a step down. And even he admits as such. So Yeah, and I have to say, there may be things that will frustrate you. Like, I'm not, you know, you may think other movies are, are not good, but they will never be this uninteresting. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or Twitter at cageclubpod. See all the episodes that we've done. See the other shows on the network. Reviews for things that we've written. All sorts of fun stuff at those three places. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.